0: Hey, everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Oh, baby, we've got the classic, the world-renowned, world-renowned story. This one, everybody knows Moses and the burning bush. This story has been told every which way. It has been wrung out dry of applications uh, to everybody's life. Uh, we, we, I mean, my goodness, why, why are we even doing? Why are we even doing this? Everybody knows the story. Everybody knows what happened. I agree with you. I do. I do, and that's part of the fun of doing the epic narrative is we get to not only dig into the all the years in between phrases sometimes <laughs> so we not only get to spend entire 45 minutes on less than a verse because of all that it actually contains we also get to do the fun ones the ones that everybody knows so i want you to kick back and enjoy this conversation enjoy the story because we all know it we all know it let me read you the verses these verses have been around for a long time to go way back to the time of Moses. Now, Moses, we're in chapter 3, by the way, verse 1. Was Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Sorry, I, I just, I'm going to have trouble because, not trouble, but... Yes, I'm going to have trouble keeping a straight face through all this because I know that people have literally just beat congregations over the head with so many aspects of the story. Okay, continue reading. I know Bob's like, you said you were going to read the verses. Okay, Bob. Okay, verse 2. The angel of the Lord Lord, uh, appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through... Though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush did not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here am I. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I'm sorry. How many times have I heard this message? Oh, my gosh. You are standing on holy ground. <laughs> oh, so many preachers thought their churches were holy were holy ground, right? You are in the presence of God. You're on holy ground. Sorry. Sorry. Okay, verse 6. Okay, yes. Finish the passage. Then he said... I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, fell on his face because he was afraid to look at God. And you stand before God with your brazen face looking upward, calling him your friend. You should be on your face before God, for he is holy. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> Bob's like, "Ooh, we're in for quite a ride." Yeah, I'm. I know. I'm gonna try not. To, I, we'll see how it goes. We'll see. I already need a drink of water because I'm. I've, I've shouted so much, redlined the uh, EQ all the way across it. All right, all right. Oh, <laughs> uh, I do love this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, or Raoul, depending on what name you want to use, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. All right. Ta-da! Moses kept the flock of his father-in-law, which means Jethro would be the head of the family. So Moses was in charge of the family business, which means that, his sister-in-laws were also under his charge and the business impacted them. Like he was he was in essence the family provider. Because if you notice he kept it for Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian. So he has been reunited, reconnected to his role as spiritual advisor and leader of this borderless uh, tribe of people. So two significant things have happened in the 40 years that Moses has been in the wilderness. He's taking on not only a wife and two kids, but he's begun, you know, he, he learned the business of keeping flocks, multiple animals, but Keeping flocks, he expanded the business. He understood the nuances of of the business better than most because of how intelligent he was, and he uh, innovatively created um, a flow. He went further in and into places where other shepherds wouldn't go, in order to find uh, better grasses and and better water for his flocks. Like all of this is going on in those forty years, and I know we touched—not touched on it. We spent time on it in our last episode, but I just want to remind you: this is all involved in these in these phrases. And then during that time, Jethro got re uh, reignited reignited into his passion for God because he's in in his conversations with Moses. Moses, in essence, taught him about this one God, this God Yahweh, this God of his true heritage, even though I'm sure, you know, the story of why he was seen as an Egyptian, dressed like an Egyptian, trained as an Egyptian, all of that would have been something of great interest. And I'm, you know, it's, it's a story that you can tell like anybody's journey. Like I can tell you my life story in, in five minutes, right? I'm just going to hit the highlights. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, Raised in a Christian home. Uh went to a private uh, boarding school, Christian boarding school, really loved the church, fell in love with God, gave my life to Him, uh, went to a Bible school institute where I met my wife, went to a Bible college where I ultimately got a degree, even though technically I left with a couple credits short because an opportunity opened up for me to go into full-time ministry, and that's what I did. I did follow up and eventually graduate uh, years later, like 10 years later um went to into full-time ministry traveled uh with that with with my own spiritual journey kind of forced me to travel so i went from an ultra conservative baptist background and ministry almost cult like in its in its religious mindset went to uh one you know a church that that was well that ministry where i started was down in florida uh then i went to west virginia where i worked as a youth pastor then i went to Cape Cod, because my dad um, my dad had serious health issues, and we wanted to be near him, have our kids know him. At that point, um, we had four children. They really had never gotten to know my father, so we moved to Cape Cod, took on a part-time ministry and full-time work elsewhere, mostly as a painter, sometimes as a convenience store worker. Uh, left there because of clashes with philosophy and theology, <laughs> ended up at a youth camp uh, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where I completely deconstructed my faith and reconstructed my faith without fear of losing my paycheck, which is usually why I think a lot of people in ministry don't do any sort of spiritual growth, significant spiritual growth, is because once they take on a full time position, now their livelihood depends on their belief system. And they really can't be challenged in their belief system uh, because, well, their family might go hungry. And that's a legitimate concern and an unfortunate one that too many have to deal with and something we probably should look into sometime. And then uh, from there, um, I went back into church ministry, uh, found a really great place in Connecticut. That went really well until it suddenly didn't. That's another whole story and quite dramatic story, but it just suddenly turned. And from there, I ended up at a small church Uh, in Massachusetts, where the first year I was a complete missionary, uh, we had to raise our support to go, but felt very strongly that this is where God wanted us. We went, um, eventually ended up full-time being paid incredibly well and had a beautiful home, uh, beautiful home, beautiful, excellent salary. But man, again, philosophically, I just thought the church really needed to make some changes and I thought it was more local. But after we left that church through an invitation of the Lord to either—and it was an invitation. He said, you can stay, but don't try and change anything. It will just cause a lot of trouble, uh, relational trouble and spiritual trouble for a lot of people. You can stay. Like, it's a good-paying job. Don't don't feel bad about staying. Or you can—I'm inviting you to, to something else where you don't know yet, but if you're willing to go— Pack up and go. So we chose to take that journey. And at the time of this recording, we're still on that journey. Sold everything, bought an RV and a truck. And we traveled the country and saw, my goodness, an amazing, amazing things all over, the, all over the country. Visited family and friends, went to events, uh, reconnected with people. Um, yeah, and that's me. That's where we are now. Currently standing in an RV bedroom uh and it now is a you know recording studio where i uh do my podcast, and we are getting ready to do episode nine of season three of the epic narrative and that 's my life in less than five minutes, so I could tell you that right, but any one of those things trust me, I could spend hours on hours and i i I do think you know someday I just might do the one. Of uh, my wife and I getting together. Because I love telling that story. I mentioned it last last episode. And I do love telling that story. It's just fun. Um, so check it out. I'm sure it'll be a bonus episode somewhere down the line. We'll let the producer decide where to plug it in. But uh, that's just fun to talk about. So I just think that that based on my journey, the longer you're out of the culture you're used to, the more aware you become of how deep that culture has been rooted into your psyche, into your paradigm of life. And so for me, I'd been in the church for close to 40 years, church, Christian ministry for close to 40 years, even though theologically and philosophically I kept changing and adjusting and then I would have to move or, you know, resign and move, resign and move or be asked to move. All of that goes on right throughout the years, and I, so I thought I was kind of like, I'm, you know, rebellious, I guess, is the way I looked at myself. Like, I'm, I'm a free thinker in all of these people that are just so confined to the, the boundaries, the chains of denominationalism and theologies and, and uh, whatever, church life. But it turns out it was pretty deep in me, and I mean, we've been on the road for close to nine months, and man I less than a month ago someone brought something up in a conversation, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, like wow, I really do need to look at that they you know i whatever my ver- my vocabulary gave me away, and they were like, "You know, this is what I see, and I was like, "Wow, yeah, you're right, yeah, the church is still a part of my thinking." when it comes to that. So another opportunity to spend about a week or so just really meditating and working through that and, and getting rid of that root. So I totally get how Moses could be 40 years in the desert and he probably had spent at least a few years still untangling from the philosophy of the Egyptian trainings that he had had of the leadership trainings that he had had of the, you know, of the, uh, anthropology that he would have studied the humans, the, you know, what the psychology of humans, all of that, um, man, it, it just had to blow his mind. Sometimes he'd be sitting around and having dinner with his family and having a great time. They'd be talking about work or whatever. And then he might say something and they'd be like, wait, what? And he'd be like, well, no, doesn't everybody, doesn't everybody think that that's not what we think. And they would, you know, counter out, counterbalance him with, with their take on life. And he'd be like, wow. And he would reconsider all of life. So I think Moses has been, you know, contemplating his past, contemplating what he thought he missed out on, contemplating uh, his new life, re- you know, reimagining life different, uh, and with different uh, paradigms and just really enjoying being out and about. It says that Moses led the flock to the backside of the desert, again, to the wilderness, to the, to the mountain of God. Like, like that whole phrasing... And I know, again, man, it gets preached on. Go to the, you know, go into the backside of the desert. Are you in the backside of the desert? Are you, do you feel left out by God? Do you feel like no one can see you? Are you alone in the in the mountains? Well, my friend, you are in the mountain of God. And God has not let go of you. And you can come back from this. God is there on the mountain, in the wilderness, on the backside. It's, it's awesome. Honestly, the applications are awesome. But let's just stick with the story. <laughs> well, okay, you, you can, we'll have fun either way. So when Moses led the flock to the backside, this is basically, this would be a place that isn't frequented by other shepherds and their herds. This is, a, this is one of those areas that Moses had kind of pioneered for new grass, fresh water, um, protection of the flocks and he he would have he wouldn't have been alone. Now, I do know that it's far more dramatic if he's the only one out there. He's got you know twenty thirty sheep uh, he's he's somewhat in a dark place. he's you know he's always uh, b- uh begrudging uh disappointment, uh, yeah, almost depressed. By the fact that he had been kicked out of Egypt, that nobody, you know, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Now I'm stuck here in the desert. I have a wife and kids I have to keep track of. Like, I I do understand that psyche that people want to picture Moses in. I just, I can't anymore because of all the study I've done. Like, he's just way too big of a character. I do understand he might have had some down days. Like, I'm not saying he was always on top of his game. I'm a fairly joy-filled person, but periodically, like it's a, you get a bummer day. You get a bummer day, especially when you think, man, what is God doing with me? I mean, I, you know, like I said, I'm nine months in a, in a, an RV and really haven't landed anywhere. I haven't, I'm having fun, but, but yeah, it's a natural thing to question things, but that, I don't think he lived there. I think he would have known better than to stay there. And, and he understood God enough. He, you know, he watched his father-in-law be re, reignited in his passion for leading people in their spiritual journeys. He, he had children that I'm sure caused him much laughter and, and jo- you know, and joy with his wife. There, the, his his journey wasn't over. He just you know didn't know where it was all going to go. But he's on the backside of the of the mountain, and there would have probably been other shepherds. Now he oversaw them remember he was tending the flock. he tended to oversee things. He would wander between flocks and other shepherds. so he might have been alone in this scenario, but he wouldn't have been the only one on the back side of the mountain. He might have had some sheep with him. He might have been transferring sheep from one you know uh, cool, Valley in the, in the, you know, in the crevices of the mountain to another, uh, to connect with another shepherd, with another group. I don't know. And neither do you. So use your imagination. It's okay. You can't be wrong. So as he's going, something is, it captured his attention. His attention is captured. By a burning bush, now this would this is we'll call it common it it's not an everyday occurrence that one of these sage bushes that has been dried out would burst into flames. It was not an unknown uh, event out in the desert, but generally they didn't last long, right just kind of I mean, it, it's kind of like burning a dried Christmas tree. I don't know if you've ever done that, but man, at least in the Northeast, uh, we we've done it many times because we often lived in an area where you could have what we called burn piles, and 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 I loved I love clearing land. I don't like being pressured to do it, but it's something that I just I just do. I don't know. It's weird. Uh but I just like doing it. I like I like recapturing it or making making nature enjoyable like to be in, to be able to walk or or ride your bike or uh whatever. And so I've cleared a lot of land, chopped down a lot of trees, whatever. Always had a burn pile going and some of them were quite epic. You can talk to my kids. We used to, when we were at the camp uh, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, oh baby, did we have burn piles because we had all kinds of land to clear and I had at the time three boys and an amazing daughter, but generally me and the boys would would go clear property, just drag stuff out, cut things down, uh, and then we had this pile. We would just, all throughout the year, then when the burn season would come up, which was usually you know early spring when when the snow is melted and the ground is really wet and sloppy and it's the idea of forest fires are pretty pretty downgraded to pretty low levels then we'd light this thing up and man it would literally burn all day all day and i often had to put it out so i don't even know why i said that what where bob help me out we're just you just got. I did. It's just fire. So there'd be a little burst of flame, little smoke over, you know, behind a rock or whatever, and it'd be like, oh, it must be one of those bushes that, that caught on fire. So, so he sees it. It's not unseen before, but it's also super common. Uh, not super common, but it was a known thing, right? So it pops into flame and he expects it to die down and he, and it, you know, it's kind of going lingering more than usual, the smoke. So I picture him kind of wandering, you know, kind of take a look like, wow, that's, that's a little bigger. Oh, that's right. I was talking about the Christmas trees. (laughs) I totally forgot. So right now, yes. So Christmas trees were awesome on burn piles and, and I would, you know, we'd throw it on the pile. But we couldn't burn until spring, so we would often, like, pull it off because, man, you would kind of wait, and then you'd throw it on as the fire was dying down and just watch the smoke. I mean, just just the crackling of the pine sap because no matter how dry the Christmas tree was, it still had sap in it, and the dry needles would just burst into flames. But first there'd be this heavy smoke, white billowing smoke and and you'd hear the crackling and then then the flame would kind of pops up through the white smoke and then all of a sudden it's like and it gets super hot and then it's gone like it it's just like and then you just step back and go man that was so cool that's what i picture these stage stage bushes like when they would catch on fire these thorn bushes like really fun but not, they don't last long. So the fact that this was kind of going on, I think he just kind of was like, well, that's weird. So maybe it's not a sage bush. Maybe it's somebody's campfire. Maybe we're not alone. Well, he probably didn't think he was alone. But who else is up here on the mountain? And he, I, I picture that he kind of walked around and he sees, you know, the flame. Now, again, I love to refer to the Ten Commandments because it's such a great scene and again he enters into this in like fear and trembling and and awe and the you know the the fire and the bush that doesn't could be isn't consumed and and it's very eerie and mystical and amazing and i totally get that that like yes go with that it's it's awesome uh, but for me, I think he comes around the corner and he sees this this bush and and he's just kind of staring at it because it's a fire. I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't stare at a fire. You just stare at it. There's something about it, right? I mean, it's it's mystifying, it's mesmerizing. People, people will stare at a campfire and then they'll they'll watch it, you know, if they run out of fuel or it's like late at night and then it goes down. And then you just keep staring and you watch the coals slowly go dark and you keep staring and you keep saying, oh, there's, there's one, you know, and you find like the one or two areas of coals that are still rolling 20 minutes after the flame is out, 30 minutes after you think, wow, it's still going. It's still going. This is crazy. Look at this. And then eventually you get out the water, you throw the water on there and it's still hot. Like the steam comes up right off, you know. Anyways, so fire is mesmerizing, and I think he's staring at it, going, "This is, this is just a burning bush." But what is going on? I've never seen one burn this long. And after a reasonable amount of time, he's like, "Wait a minute, it's actually not burning at all." I'm, you know, I don't know how far away he is when he's watching this, but it, it says uh, Moses, uh. uh The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. That word saw means it wasn't like an immediate thing. Like Moses is walking along and the bush next to him bursts into flames and he jumps back and he's like, whoa. And then he's like, wait, the bush isn't being burned up. What's going on? What he realizes is that the flame is not actually on the bush. It's actually within the bush. And I think he knows something's, th- something's up. And this is what's amazing. It says, uh, Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. This is huge to me. Because this shows that Moses made a choice. He had a choice. Like, if anything, we need to understand that when God speaks to us, we have a choice. God is always inviting us. He didn't force Moses to come over. He captured Moses' attention, and he waited I mean, if we can apply that to our lives, right? How many things have we, has God used to capture our attention and we've chosen not to go pay attention to it? He captured our attention. We looked at it and then we said, eh, I'm not going to go over there. I'm going to keep doing what I know to do. I'm going to do what I'm comfortable doing. I'm going to walk the way that I know to walk. I'm here in the mountain, on the backside of the mountain. I've got a job to do, I'm tending flock, whether you think he's with other shepherds or not, it's regardless. He had a choice. Do I go with what I know or do I go towards something that I think God is capturing my attention with? It says when he saw that it didn't burn, Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. I think he honestly believed and understood this is a spiritual thing. Moses would have been very familiar with spirits of all kinds. He'd been around many an idol during religious ceremonies. He had been and seen, I'm sure, some very interesting and spectacular supernatural events. Whether they were energized by demons or not is irrelevant. He's seen them. So when he sees this, he's like, yeah, this is, this is strange. This is something, I, I'm going to pay attention to this. I'm going to give some attention to this. It's fascinating to me that a lot of times we, we brush over this. Oh, of course he'd go see it. This is very strange. No, I th- he made a choice. He saw it, and he said, I will go over and see in other words, I'm going to I'm going to spend some time investigating what's going on here. Why the bush does not burn up? Because it's clearly not on fire. There is a flame in it, but it is not on fire. So why is the bush not burning up? So this is this is God, right? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look So, so God's paying attention. He always pays attention. He doesn't force us to do, to do anything. Like I said, but he is ready for whatever choice we make to, to extend his goodness. And he says to him, okay, I mean, it would not says at this point, he looks and he says, Oh, good. There he goes. He's, he's coming. He's going to go to the bush. This is awesome. He's going to go over and have a look. I'm going to talk to him. And out of the flames, he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here am I. It's, it's, it's fascinating, right? He can God can use anything to capture our attention. Sometimes it is supernatural. But sometimes it's what we would call natural things. He can capture our attention... Through artistry of all kinds, like it's it's you know uh, there there are certain artists that capture my attention. I particularly enjoy um, impressionist art, and I I am fascinated by by like uh, uh, Salvador and uh, Picasso. His cubism's blow my mind. So there's, there's impressionism for me. I'm fascinated how somebody can, can give you such an amazing picture of what poppies look like. And when you get up close, it's like, you, 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 but you can't see it. Like it's, it's, I don't know. It's fascinating. I, you step back and it's like, wow, that's an amazing, that's an amazing piece of art. And you get up close and you think it just looks like all these crazy scribblings of color. How how in my mind right how do you look at that field of poppies and I'm just picking that particular art Monet how do you how do you and and know I'm just, if I just dab and stroke, dab and stroke these colors, these combinations of colors, this nuance of green, this nuance of brown, and there's a little bit of orange, like, you get, how did he know? How did he know where to put that stuff? It's fascinating how his mind worked. And for Picasso and El Salvador, they're so weird. And yet, and yet, again, for me, they capture me. Right, it's an invitation to spend more time staring. I just wanna, I just wanna put it together, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at it, uh, at understanding it, just because I've applied myself to trying to understand it, because it, it's inviting. So the Lord can use things to invite us. It doesn't have to be supernatural. It could be very natural. It could be artistic. It could be spiritual. There could be something that you interact with on a spiritual level, whether it's through meditation or reading or a service uh, or a conference or whatever. Like It it could capture you, but it's, it's the idea of he captures your attention and it's an invitation for something else. It's an invitation. Even the miraculous healings that I've seen, it's an invitation to proceed. It's an invitation to to be part of a process to increase your faith, not to stay there. Moses could have stayed on the outskirts and just watched this bush that didn't burn, made a few mental notes, and then went on to, to talk to other shepherds, to be like, you would not believe what I saw today, an amazing thing. There was, there was a flame within a bush, but it didn't burn the bush. It was very spiritual, very spiritual. It meant a lot to me. Because I think God was letting me know this was his mountain and that he's here with us. Like there's lots of ways he could have applied this and still been encouraged. Because even at the invitation of God, you're going to be encouraged because you are made in the image of God. And your purpose and destiny come from God. So anytime you encounter God, you're going to be encouraged. Moses could have left this site and still been encouraged. It makes me wonder if this was the first time God had reached out to him. (gasps) Uh <gasps> Bob, you don't think Moses would have ignored the call of God? Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I'm not saying he did. This could have been the first time God invited him to connect with him. But, but based on the last chapter, we know that God paid attention to the, to the cry of his people. And I believe God started to answer that call, that cry right away. He was like, "I know a guy who, if he chooses to engage to the invitation, he would be perfect to lead my people." And I think He started to reach out to Moses right away. Was it the same day? Some people say yes. There are there are there are religious teachers that are like, "Yes, the same day," that that God that Israelites cried out. Moses saw the burning bush. fine that's awesome. I hope that's you know that'd be great if it was true but I don't think it has to be true because God is so consistent he's always looking to to connect supernaturally, naturally, artistically, spiritually, relationally uh, it's it's physically like there's he's always looking to connect. You know, was this was this just a more dramatic r- reaching out? I don't know, but there it is. When, when, uh, uh where, where, oh, when, when? Why, why did I highlight the word when? Mo, when Moses turned to investigate, that's a time thing. Is that a quote? I don't even know. Then God spoke. Oh, I see. Okay, that's what I want to say. We could just keep reading your notes, Bob. Yes. So when he turned, that's when God spoke. So when Moses took the opportunity to, to say yes to the to the invitation, that's when God speaks more. And that's when God spoke. He's like, hey, Moses, Moses. It's not uh it's not like a big amputator a- 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 amputator. A- uh, amphitheater. Thank you. Wow, my brain. It's not a big amphitheater. Uh, uh, voice, you know. I don't think. I don't think. Now, maybe, it, maybe it is in your mind. I know it was in in the Ten Commandments, right? Moses, Moses, and Moses starts to shake. <gasps> here am I. Here am I. Don't come any closer, Moses. I I just I don't I. There's nothing in this language that indicates God's trying to scare Moses or put the fear of God in him. God's looking to reconnect with one of His children, who has uh, been out in the desert for a while. He's letting him know again. Listen, I, I haven't forgotten you. Moses, I believe, has been has been searching, seeking, and pursuing God for years now. I don't I don't think that this is a big like amphitheater moment. I think he's I think uh, the power of God isn't here to crush us. I don't think that the power of God is here to consume us, even in our weakness. And I think that's one of the things he's showing him by being in the bush without consuming the bush. This is a very weak plant, so to speak, kind of unstable, easily burned, and yet God doesn't consume it. He's showing Moses, listen, I'm not a God who destroys, I'm not a God who forgets the frailty of life. And then he calls to Moses by name. And Moses responds, yes, it's me. Here am I. Moses is letting him know, yes, you've got the right guy. I am Moses. And and I am available. As I've always been. And God always knew that. Like there's just, there's, This is is all about reconfirming with Moses and renewing Moses and connecting with Moses. He's like, Moses, take off your shoes for the place you are standing on is holy ground. Why would he say that? The ground is the ground. It's all holy. I believe what God is showing him is listen, I want you to know. I don't want anything between you and me. I want complete connection to the frequency of the world that I created for you, for you are in my image. I want to I want to <laughs> I want to feel you touch the ground. It had to be so symbolic and so meaningful for Moses. I, I, I watch, you know, my wife loves the beach. She can't be on a beach without taking her shoes off. We've been, at, you know, on, on the North Shore of, of Jersey where I have some family. And it's, you know, January cause, or December because we're there for Christmas. We go to the beach. She takes off her shoes, or her socks. She has to feel the sand in her toes. There's something amazing about it. I, I think that there's something spectacular about taking off his, his sandals and putting his toes in the dirt. I wonder if it has to do with something from his childhood as well. And he's saying, let's connect on a completely different level. Let's take something that, that we both know, the ground, and let's turn it into something special just between the two of us. We've had these moments, so you probably have had these moments at church events or ministry events or missions trips where something so common suddenly becomes so holy that it blows your mind and you're so humbled by it. I remember falling on my knees in a you know one of the dumps, the garbage dump that we were ministering in one day. It, I was just blown away. By the presence of God in this place, and I know many have. You know, I know. Unfortunately, garbage dumps are like are like a, a mission trip central for just about any ministry I've I've ever known. There's always a trip to the to the dump. I I heard one sad statistic, uh, not statistic, but sad story from a missionary. Um, not a missionary, sorry, from a kid and from a third world country. And he was telling me that in, uh, in this area of Central America that he was from, he said there were 14 ministry offices surrounding the garbage dump outside of the city. And there was only one ministry office in the city. Because everybody wanted the photos, everybody wanted the stories, everybody needed the money, and that's how you got the money, was with these stories. Anyways, sorry, that's a side note. I just think Moses is having a moment, an encounter with God here that turned the ordinary into extraordinary. And God says, listen, this is who I am. I am the God of covenant. I'm the covenant God of your history, of your heritage, and I want you to know who I am. See, this is, this is not a, like a threatening thing to Moses. This is God, this is God saying, I, I want you to know me in a deeper way. Not that you haven't known me, not that you haven't known of me, but whenever God encounters you, whenever he invites you to something, he's inviting you to go deeper with him. He wants you to know more of him. And that's what he's telling Moses. I want you to know the depth of relationship, just like I had with your forefathers. I want you to be my friend. And we know later he actually calls Moses his friend. So Moses understood what was going on here. And Moses falls on his face, not in fear, I don't think, but in gratitude. In gratitude for the for the fact that God remembered him, that the that the connection was being restored, that God is personal and relational. I'm sure many times he thought you know he knew in his head that God hadn't forgotten him, but his heart was like, Is he really there? And I get that. Like I said, in my journey, I get that. I get it. He's a you know, <laughs> he's like, here am I. He doesn't know what's about to get said, but he knows who he's talking to. That's the amazing thing about God. When you when you remember who he is, and God, of course, had reminded him of who he was, and he's like, yeah, I'll do whatever it is you ask. Like whenever I get a little freaky deaky on this journey and I think, like we're gonna run out of money, we're gonna we could run out of food. Like we we could we could end up in a worse situation. I remember who God is, and it's like ah, I don't think so. He's been way too faithful, way too consistent at reminding us and confirming for us that we're doing what He invited us to do. So is Moses scared? Maybe yeah, a little bit because you don't know what's coming, but. But not knowing what coming is just a little thing when you remember who God is. He's not scared that God's going to kill him because he's he's walking on holy ground. I didn't know this was holy ground. I didn't know it was holy ground. God, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Because he knows if God wanted to kill him, he'd already be dead. No. No, he, he is on his face realizing, wow, this is amazing. And he might not understand all about God. He might be thinking, well, God's still going to punish me for something. But, but I, I don't, you know, those are lies that he has to work out of his head. But at least he knows in his, in his heart that he has not forgotten. And his reaction speaks to how much he longs for deeper connection to God and to his people. He doesn't know that he's being asked to go back to Egypt to free the people and to lead them out of slavery back to where they should have been and should have stayed. He doesn't know that. All he knows is that the God that he has been acquainted with and is pretty awesome has reached out to him individually and said, I want to be more. And Moses is overwhelmed by that with gratitude and honor and love. Now we'll find out what God actually wants to ask him to do next week on the Epic Narrative. I hope you enjoyed today's journey. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob thoughts. Okay, well, this this week I, I enjoyed, I I don't know why, I enjoy these stories, uh, <laughs> but I did want to jump back to the idea that so many pastors, ministry leaders, um, they kind of get locked into a belief system based on the, usually their education and or the denomination or, quote, the independent church that they're part of. You kind of make a commitment to a statement of faith, and that's it. And after that, you just basically teach that, apply that, reapply that, reimagine it, rework the way it's taught over and over and over and over again till the day that you die. And those that come to those churches often come because they know we're gonna be taught the same thing that the last guy taught, that the last person taught. We are forever locked in to a theological belief system that we will never depart from because I guess at some level you just believe we're right. And maybe at a nominal level you start to think, well, we may not be right, but it's what I like. And so I think we're going, this is the right thing. I think this is the best idea. So my point is many, not all, I'm sure not all, Many pastors cannot explore new theology. Now, this is something that um, I mentioned in in this episode, how I went away to this, I not went away, but in my in my path, I, for whatever reason, maybe because I didn't go to seminary, i I never felt locked into a belief system. That would have kept me from exploring these things. Trust me, the first place I worked for, I knew as soon as I started exploring the concept of grace, I knew it meant my job. I knew if word got out that I believed in—I, I know for some they'd say, "Well, you were—you were a hyper grace." No, I, just, I literally just started to talk to myself, and I had read a book, and it—it it just ignited these these concepts of what if grace, you know, what if grace, and it was, uh, man, it was just, you know, for me, I wanted to pursue God over having a job, and clearly that's happened to me over and over and over again, (laughs) because I keep losing jobs. Someday I hope to have a job again. Uh, But all that to say, back to this idea, being untangled from the system for as long as I have now, over a year and a half, uh, I have become more convinced than ever that pastors don't explore new theology and new belief. And even saying those words, there are people that would hear those words and be like, new, you can't explore new beliefs. The oh, no, Word of God is unchanging. The Word of God is unchanging. God is unchanging. It's like, oh, I'm not. I'm not trying to change God. I'm trying to know him better. And you can't do that if you're not willing to explore. If all I'm doing is parody parody parody. If I'm just repeating the same thing that the teacher before that, you know, the teacher wrote or the book, read, that teacher is repeating what that teacher wrote, we're just rehearsing the same thing. It's it's no longer a dynamic relationship with God. It is a stale it is stale and dead if if your relationship with anyone literally repeats the same stories over and over again unchanging in its in their insight unchanging in the vocabulary unchanging then eventually you just you don't have to meet with them anymore there's nothing there it's a dead relationship and i know many people have dead relationships and there are many people who like them because they don't actually want a relationship. They want something that they can count on. There's so many country music songs about the fact that they are unchanging, you know. It's it's sad. It's sad. Relationships are dynamic and interactive and have tension and have joy and have elation and go through tough times. It's, this is the same with God. And if you look at the high-level theologies, people like Tolkien and Lewis and, um, yeah, C.S. Lewis and, oh, uh, now, now I'm forgetting, but, like, theology was discussed for years. Even in the Hebrew world, it is discussed every week to get to know God better. Are they right 100% of the time? No. But they understand that going in. We may not be right, but we are going to explore this and determine something. We are going to pursue this and see if it's something we should keep. it's it's uh, it's it's uh, unfortunate that so many pastors, ministry leaders are are locked in. To a belief system that they signed up for in college, and doubled down on in seminary, and now they literally have nowhere else to go. Their only job is to be entertaining enough to to bring you in, to find the right programs to keep you in, to keep the money generated. Like it's just a treadmill, and I and I don't, I literally don't blame anybody for deciding, wow, this relationship with God is dead, right? The church is dead, I'm done with this. Because we've we have created a system that does that. It takes the dynamic interaction with God out. Not everyone. I've been around some amazing people, some amazing churches, some house churches. Oh my goodness, house church leaders are so exciting. They remind me so much of missionaries. A lot of missionaries are very dynamic because they have to be uh yeah house church leaders entrepreneurial they they love God they love people and they literally just are like let's just find more ways to do that both those things it's it's awesome anyways I appreciate you guys hanging out uh I think this uh, this is fun we'll look into more more time with Moses and the burning bush next week um have yourself a good day everyone if you can help us. Here at the, at, at the uh, Epic Narrative, please click the giving link uh, associated there at the bottom of this um, description of the episode, uh, or you can go to my Bob Thoughts page or my Facebook page, or you can go to the website, thebobswitzer.com, uh, and just give us a hand. We could really use it. We're still on the road. I'm still jobless. Probably because my theology, you know, I'm willing willing to discuss theology. Well, that makes a lot of churches nervous, but that's all right. My relationship with God is awesome, and I love it. Anyways, if you can help us out, click those links, give us a hand. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. I'll talk to you again next week.